Hello, science fiction and pop culture fans, and welcome to episode two of Jason Offit's So You Had to Build a Time Machine. I am Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on So You Had to Build a Time Machine, Skid and Brick discuss the bits of their reality that keep dropping in and out, like nickel slot night at the casino. The fake haunted house cord bot looks like it might be the real deal. And Bud Light Dave's late for work as he somehow wound up in an alley behind all National Burger. Cord reveals his haunted house is a ripoff. Except that one time a real live scientist dropped from a hole that opened in the air three feet above his hallway floor and Other Dave Meets a Cow. Moo. Chapter 3, September 4th. 1. The Sunday Kansas City Star rolled and stuffed into a plastic bag to keep out rain that was never in the forecast, lay on the sidewalk on Baltimore Street between Clem's Country Diner and a payday loan place that changed names every couple of weeks. Skid looked at her vintage thrift store swatch as she walked through a cool-down. It was 8.45 a.m. Clem's had been open for more than two hours, and the loan place opened at 8. She had told herself earlier if the paper was still there by the time she walked by with her coffee and doughnut, no muffin this morning, maybe not ever, it was officially hers. She passed Clem's. The smell of bacon wafted through the screen door. Inside, the counter was dotted with old men in plaid pastel shirts and blue jeans held on with suspenders and a belt. Never can be too careful. Couples in a few of the booths sipped coffee and read the newspaper. Ha! Huh. Monday's paper. If someone had wanted to read Sunday's paper, they would have read it on Sunday. Skid bent and snatched the newspaper off the pavement and stuck it under her arm like she hadn't stolen it. Randall R. Rowe didn't tolerate getting anything for free. Hard work, Skid's father had stated the day he caught her taking a sucker from a basket in the grocery store. She was seven, and that was why the candies were there, but it didn't matter to Randall. They walked to their car, a bag of groceries in one of Randall's hands, Skid's small fingers in the other. Hard work is what makes a person. Study is work. Practice is work. Work is work. But it was free, Skid told him. He stopped, never letting go of her hand. Randall squatted and looked his daughter in the eyes. Are the clothes you're wearing free? Are these groceries free? She shook her head, wanting to pull her eyes away from his deep brown ones, but she couldn't. He smiled. If you get things for free, they have no meaning. It's the work that makes them important. He paused, staring deeply at his daughter. Do you understand, honey? Yes, Daddy, she'd said. Skid hadn't known what he was talking about then. She just wanted to get home and watch TV. She did now. Life, she'd found, is what a person wanted it to be, and sometimes a person had to take a handout when it came. 2. 
The MacBook Air chirped. Cord sat at his desk in what had once been the sunroom of the Sanderson family and scrolled through the booking website he'd subscribed to when he bought the house. His page, usually quiet on a Monday morning because most of the bookings were done by weekend ghost hunting groups or drunk college students who didn't do anything productive until 3 a.m., but not today, and not yesterday. The computer chirped again, another booking, this one in December. All his slots for September, October, and November were already filled. Chirp. Thank you, Beverly Gibson. Cord knew, as he slid the laptop shut and went for his pre-tour ritual, batteries charged, closet refrigeration on, loosened that basement step that had stopped squeaking, that Beverly was only part of it. Cord's real financial hero was Tommy Sanderson, or whomever had dropped out of the air and onto the floor of his hallway. If ghosts existed, and Cord wasn't convinced they did, the person from Friday night wasn't a ghost. He was real. He came from somewhere wearing gray dockers, and he went somewhere wearing gray dockers. The question on both counts wasn't so much the who or the how, but the where. Where did he come from, and where did he go? Cord went into the kitchen, well-stocked with water and soda at $1.50 a bottle. The Keurig, for when the Sleepies came to visit, took coins, bills, and credit cards. He pulled a hammer from the junk drawer. He'd wanted to keep the feel of the Sanderson murder house as close to a home as he could, and every Midwestern home he knew of had a kitchen junk drawer. The problem with a man appearing then disappearing on the spot Delbert Sanderson butchered his son Tommy wasn't the fact that he did it in front of twenty witnesses. Oh, no. That was a present from God, or Jesus, or the jolly fat man himself. Cord needed all those people to see the amazing appearing man, then tell everyone they knew about it. From the bookings, it was working as fast as a new government hire whose soul hadn't been beaten into submission. The problem was the same problem all those visiting ghost hunters had. Repeatability. Nothing's real unless it's repeated. That's why Babe Ruth didn't hit just one home run in 1927. He hit 60. If you can't do something more than once, nobody believes it. Who are you? Cord wondered aloud, walking down the basement steps, putting all his weight on the loose step and bouncing. Yep, the atmosphere-building squeak had gone. And what were you doing in my house? Cord knew he had to find the amazing-appearing man, and he had to find him fast. When he did, he'd have to pay the man to do the disappearing trick again, and the way visitors were clamoring to get inside the Sanderson murder house, he could afford it. 3. The day-old Sunday edition of the Kansas City Star had a problem. Not on page A1, where idiots from Washington, D.C., Germany, and Russia couldn't get their shit figured out, and not on page B1, where idiots from various local city governments couldn't get their shit figured out either. It was in the Around the City section, under the picture of a band Skid had not seen Saturday night as she worked concert security. A headline read, Steely Dan Rocks KC. First off, Steely Dan never rocked anything. She read the first two paragraphs, just enough of the story to know Steely Dan apparently played from 8 to 10 p.m. at the Sprint Center, the exact time and place she'd worked. 
Skid glanced at the folio. September 3rd. It was the right paper. Second, I saw the Doobie Brothers. They told me Jesus was just all right. But there was that one guy. The crowd at the gate was quiet because it was the type of crowd that paid to see a 50-year-old band. Skid stood beside a ticket taker in case of trouble, although the only trouble she noticed was that management had instructed security to wear their crimson t-shirts while she wore pink nail polish. Skid hated her colors to clash. But, the guy told the ticket taker, he was about 65 and red in the face. It could have been because of anger, or because it was hot enough for all the concert goers to sweat geritol. I bought a ticket to see Steely Dan. I'm sorry, sir, but the Doobie Brothers are playing tonight. Doobie Brothers, Steely Dan, Timbinal Boulevard, Timbinal Avenue, Pink Frosted Muffins, Chocolate Frosted Muffins. What the hell is going on here? May I see the ticket, sir? Skid said, stepping forward and holding out her hand. He gave it to her without protest. Steely Dan, brought to you by Boulevard Brewing Company, Crossroads District, Kansas City, Missouri, 7 p.m., September 2nd. No refund. Something was wrong. And not just with the ticket. Skid felt it. She'd felt it the moment her fist connected with Bud Light Dave's nose, and that feeling hadn't gone away. Things were off. Like she'd taken an afternoon nap and woken up groggy. Big Chuck, the afternoon DJ on KYYS, said this on her drive to work. The days are strange, his voice rasped from the speakers in Skid's car. I'm not sure why, but something's not right. Has anyone else noticed an odd feeling? She handed the ticket back. If you don't mind seeing the Doobie Brothers, I think we'll let you in, sir, she said, then turned to the confused ticket taker. The ticket's legit, and it's for today. It just says the wrong band. Must be a misprint. The ticket taker waved her electronic wand over the barcode on the ticket and handed it back to Steely Dan Guy, who looked even more confused than she did. Yeah, what the hell? Skid let the newspaper drop to the table and picked up her coffee from Dan's Daylight Donuts. She hated it when people spelled donuts like that. It was just lazy. I'm losing my mind, she said over the lid before taking a drink. The coffee was just bad enough to pull her mind back to someplace she knew. She had to admit Hipster Dan Haggerty's coffee was better. I worked the Doobie Brothers concert. I know I did. She sat the cup down when she realized her hands were shaking. For the first time since Skid had left home, if a trailer in a traveling circus can be called home, she didn't feel in control. I'm losing it, she whispered. There's no other explan- She stopped. Her eyes looked in disbelief at the picture in the newspaper of Donald Fagan singing something, probably Ricky Don't Lose That Number, or some other song that gave Skid a headache. Then her gaze dropped to the bottom of the page as she reached for her coffee again, this time with both hands. A headline froze her attention. g g, -g ghost Spectral spirit spotted at Sanderson Murder House. The picture with the story, tagged Star Photo by Carly, was of someone she recognized. That guy? She jogged past the Sanderson Murder House Saturday morning, 
just as two newsies stepped out of their car. But that seemed like a long time ago. The doofus in the picture, Cordry Bellamy, the cutline read, had rushed out to meet them, but gave her a look and a smile all the same. Skid drank more bad coffee and read the article. When she finished, she leaned back as far as she could in the wooden kitchen chair and stared at the ceiling. She had to go see the Muffin Man. 4. The sky opened and a body dropped from a swirling purple hole. If anyone had been around, which they weren't, they may have heard screaming. But since the screaming began at roughly 13,200 feet above sea level outside Kansas City, and it traveled at about 150 miles per hour, it's not surprising David's screams did nothing but empty his lungs. He tried to think about why he was falling to his death, and how he could mathematically predict his impact velocity, if he could just ignore all the damn wind in his ears. The pain in his leg was distracting but his mind was mostly consumed with skid. A purple wave burst from the ground, shooting toward him like a missile. But the wave didn't actually hit David. It enveloped him, caressed him, slowed him. A second later, he reappeared five feet above a metal stock tank. Five. As the young mom opened the door out of manic muffins, the bell on a wire overheard jingled. Bye, Brick, her seven-year-old son Tanner said, waving the hand holding a muffin almost as big as his face, his other hand pinched in his mother's. Tanner and his mom, Serenity, were regulars. They first came in on a slow day while Brick put the finishing touches on a Goliath barbarian character, and Tanner caught sight of the fire giant on the cover of the Dungeons & Dragons player's handbook. Cool! What is this stuff? the boy asked plucking a D-20 from the counter. Brick told him, his eyes lighting up as he described the fun of gutting an orc. Tanner just grinned. About a week later, Serenity came in wearing a frown he thought better of telling her would give her crow's feet if she kept it up. I bought him that monster book thing, she'd said. The monster manual. Sure, fine, whatever. Anyway, that awful creature on the front. A beholder. I don't care what you call it. It was horrible. He had to sleep in my bed for a week. Brick gave her a free muffin for Tanner, but Serenity didn't talk to him when they came in anymore. As for Tanner, well, Brick thought he might be Tanner's new hero. But being someone's hero didn't stop Tanner from smearing whatever covers little boy's hands all over Brick's display case. As soon as the door shut behind them, Brick stepped out from behind the cash register with a rag and spray bottle. He knelt and squirted some of the blue stuff on the mysterious child streaks. He often wondered if children secreted slime. It would explain a lot. The bell over the door chimed, and light footsteps padded across the polished hardwood floor of the old building. Be with you in a second, Brick said, scrubbing the glass with a rag. The soft, sure footsteps came closer. Come on up, hipster Dan Haggerty, the voice said. We have a problem. He knew that voice. Brick pulled himself up to his full height and turned around. It was the girl from the bar. The one who threw the knife. The one who punched the oily man who wasn't the oily man. The one who sweated herself into his business Saturday morning and bought a pink frosted muffin that probably hadn't stayed pink for long, since the rest of them hadn't. 
She held a newspaper and coffee from a competitor's business. Great. My name's Brick, he said. Before you ask, I used to be a bricklayer. She took what looked like the last drink of her coffee and set the cup on a table made from a cable spool, then spread the newspaper out next to it. The woman, dressed in jeans and a dark t-shirt, wasn't as sweaty today as she'd been Saturday. Her hair was once again tied in a ponytail. Brick? Uh, sure, okay, she said, her tone all business. I was witness to something weird at Slap Happy's Dance Club Friday night. She pointed toward Brick's vast expanse of chest. You were witness to something weird at Slap Happy's Dance Club Friday night. He nodded slightly. I tried to talk to you about that Saturday. The woman waved off the words. I know. I just wasn't ready to talk about it. She paused, her face serious. I am now. You might think Friday night was as messed up as they come, but it wasn't. Things have gotten worse. The woman dropped a finger on the front page of the Around the City section of the Kansas City Star. Read this, then we'll talk. G -g -g ghost Spectral Spirit Spotted at Sanderson Murder House by Beverly Gibson. Kansas City, Missouri. The backdrop is that of a Hollywood blockbuster. Quiet family, quiet neighborhood, quiet city. Then a little corner of reality snaps and all of this is gone in one wicked night of bloodshed. Kansas City witnessed such a night on September 19, 1984, when, at 8.50 p.m., Delbert Sanderson crept through his home at 427 Gary Avenue, holding a samurai sword dripping with the blood of his own family. Today, the house belongs to Cordry Bellamy, 35, a Kansas City, Missouri native who's not old enough to remember the slayings, but values their place in the infamous part of the city's past. The Sanderson murders are legendary, but that legend had started to fade with time, he said. I bought the house because I didn't want a piece of Kansas City history forgotten. The slaying of almost an entire family, mother, son, and their dog, brings people to the Sanderson house out of an intense curiosity in the macabre and the possibility of experiencing something otherworldly. Bellamy hosts ghost tours at the house most nights of the week, and Friday, 20 guests got exactly what they paid for, the ghost of Thomas Sanderson. Thomas Tommy Sanderson was 32 years old the night in September when Delbert Sanderson chased him down on the ground floor hallway and ended his life. It was in that hallway Bellamy's guests got a glimpse of the past. Bellamy held an electromagnetic frequency meter, EMF, a device paranormal enthusiasts claim can detect the presence of ghosts. When the group moved into the hallway, the meter went off. Tamara Hooper, 25, of Lee's Summit, Missouri, was there when it happened. We were all here, right here, she said, standing in the hallway Saturday morning, and Cord's meter went all crazy. Seconds later, Witnesses claim a full-bodied apparition appeared floating two feet in the air before it crashed onto the hardwood floor still stained with Tommy Sanderson's blood. Olin Wanker, who lived next door to the Sandersons the night of the murder, stood in the hallway with the other spectators Friday. It was the ghost of Tommy Sanderson, he said. All twenty guests described the same entity. A man in his thirties with brown hair, white shirt, gray pants, and a really surprised look on his face, Bellamy said. The experience, however, wasn't over just yet. Tommy Sanderson spoke to Bellamy. Where's Skid? 
Bellamy said. The ghost of Tommy Sanderson said, Where's Skid? We have no idea what or who Skid is. Connie Franklin, R.N. of Overland Park, Kansas, who came to the ghost tour right after work at St. Luke's Hospital, said the event was eerie. It was the most exciting and creepy thing I've ever seen, she said. I'm definitely coming back. Tommy Sanderson may have even made himself known during the interview. Lights flashed and dials jumped on the EMF meter when Bellamy demonstrated it in the downstairs hallway. Susan Sanderson Meek, the only surviving member of the Sanderson family, was away at college at Northwest Missouri State University in Maryville the night of September 19, 1984. Meek doesn't believe the story of the haunting. It upset me when that man turned our house into a tourist attraction, Meek said. Dad was sick. This sort of thing just glorifies him. She also doubts the claims of the people who saw her brother. Tommy, Meek said, surprise in her voice. If there's such things as ghosts, and one did show up in my old house, it wasn't Tommy. He was always much too lazy for that. Ghost tours of the Sanderson Murder House are held Tuesday through Saturday at 7 and 9 p.m. for $20 per person. Groups of six or more can rent the house overnight for $428, $75 for each additional guest. Contact Bellamy at his website www.sandersonmurderhouse.info. 7. The step didn't take long. Cord crawled from underneath the wooden structure and stood, surveying the basement. A workbench island surrounded by a sea of electronic devices he not only didn't want to activate, he didn't want to touch. Especially the five-foot-tall circle rimmed with twisted copper wires like the inside of an electric motor. Mr. Sanderson had been a government scientist before he cracked. He apparently took his work home. None of the other owners or renters had been brave enough to touch the equipment either, so it had sat there since 1984, gathering dust and cobwebs. Cobwebs cord refused to clean. Cobwebs were ambiance to a haunted house. The basement was a missed opportunity, he knew. Something spooky in the basement could be icing on the paranormal cake. Sure, no one had been killed here on Delbert Sanderson's mad rampage, but this machine whatever it was, had never been mentioned in the newspapers, so he could call it anything he wanted. Too bad it gave him the creeps. I could hook the washer and dryer up to timers, he said to himself into the big, mostly empty room. Or maybe one to make the light over the workbench pop on and off. But those tricks would be carnival games compared to Delbert Sanderson's Stargate, or Timegate, or Bug Zapper. This was why Cord hadn't tackled the basement. He let people down there, sure, but offered no tricks. Ghost hunters knew finding anything supernatural was rare, so he was afraid of ratcheting up the action too much. Someone might become suspicious, and as soon as his cover was blown, customers would stop coming, no matter how many people fell into his hallway. Maybe, he started, but an old picture frame stopped his thought. The frame that had come with the house, the one he left because it gave a feeling of authenticity, hung crookedly off a concrete screw over the workbench, the back bent, the glass dusty, but that didn't matter. The size of the thing mattered, and it was about the size of the newspaper section that sat upstairs on the kitchen table. Hey, 
Cord set his hammer on the workbench, lifting the frame off the screw. Careful not to drop the glass onto the concrete floor, he took it upstairs. The step, third from the bottom, groaned as he walked over it. Success! If the newspaper fit, he'd hang it by the front door, just like restaurants do when they get a good review. The star story made his haunted house legitimate, but this would make it legitimate for visitors from out of town, telling them they were in an honest-to-God haunted house. He stepped into the kitchen and pushed the basement door closed with his foot. It swung shut quietly. Gotta work on that, too. If it creaks, they freak. The frame wasn't exactly the same size as the newspaper, but close enough. A grin wiped across Cord's face. I'm just going to clean you, he said, laying the frame on the table and lifting the paper. And you'll fit just like this. He flipped the newspaper section and set it face first on the glass. Eyes stared at him from the back page. Holy shit! Eight. Hmm. Brick nodded slightly and turned to page D2, his eyes jumping to D3 before flipping the pages again. Hmm? The woman said. You read the article, right? Brick turned back to the front page before flipping to D4. You mean the piece on Steely Dan? No, I didn't go. No! She rested her hands flat on the table and took in a deep breath. I did, but it wasn't Steely Dan. It was the Doobie Brothers. He flipped back to page D1. Says Steely Dan here. Look, I know what it says, she grumbled, then cleared her throat. Sorry, I'm just a bit on edge. She took a deep breath and began again. I worked the concert. I heard them play China Grove. Steely Dan doesn't play China Grove. The Doobie Brothers play China Grove. I might not like it, but that's reality. Although she didn't know what reality was anymore. Brick lowered the paper enough to look at her, his eyes dark under those bushy eyebrows. Then why does it say here it was Steely Dan? He pulled the paper back up and flipped to page D6. She lowered her voice. Why does a full-grown human simply vanish? She asked, then pulled the newspaper down. What are you looking for? I'm thinking about going to the movies tonight. I'm just seeing what's playing. She stood and looked at him over the top of the page, a frown on her lips, pleading in her eyes. But Brick didn't see that. He didn't look up. The ghost story. Did you read the ghost story? Yeah, he said. And? He shut the section to the back page. Yes, I read the ghost story. It sounds like this ghost house guy saw the guy from the bar, the one who disappeared. The oily man. Oily man? Brick shrugged. Yeah, that's what I called him. You know, in my head. He came out of the bathroom covered in some kind of oil. It smelled like hydraulic fluid. She sat back down. Was he wearing a white shirt? White enough under the stains, and gray pants, except... Brick stopped. His face may have been pinched tight under all that beard, but it was hard to tell. Skid leaned closer. Except what? He had some kind of wound on his leg wrapped in a dirty t-shirt. It was dripping with blood. Brick studied the woman for a second. His head cocked slightly giving her the impression he was a big, confused, friendly dog. Bud Light Dave didn't have a leg wound, at least not at the time, 
although he'd been asking for it. I... She started, but Brick cut her off. Is your name Skid? He asked, his voice deep, flat. She sat back like Brick had pushed her. Maybe. How do you know that name? Because, Brick said. Oily man told me two things before he vanished in a puff of ozone. He called me Brick, and he mentioned you. He paused, trying to gauge the look on her face. Confusion? Contemplation? Constipation? A debate on whether she was going to flip the table like it was a scrabble board? She was hard to read. He said, Skid's going to kill us all. To Brick, it seemed like someone had let out some of the woman's air. He did? He used my name? Yup, Brick said, laying page D8 face up on the table. His big index finger landing on the news story. Government scientist vanishes. It was this guy. A smiling black and white two-dimensional Bud Light Dave stared up at Skid. Nine. Government Scientist Vanishes by Bo Brana, Kansas City, Missouri, a physicist for a United States military research facility south of Kansas City, Missouri, is missing, an Army spokesperson said Saturday. David Collison, Ph.D., a theoretical physicist at Lemaitre Labs near Peculiar, Missouri, failed to report to work, although he called into the lab under what the spokesperson reported as duress. Collison had apparently been assaulted and robbed of his shoes in an alley behind All National Burger, 1264 South Manchester Street, Belton, Missouri, Saturday morning. His call for help to the facility logged in at 9.04 a.m. The shattered remains of his mobile telephone were discovered at the scene. Belton police located his shoes in the possession of Granada Operation Urgent Fury veteran Gordon Gilstrap. Yeah, dis bin dang shoe thing he ha, Gilstrap said. It's a blasfu gibbity whom. Belton police chief Chris Don Allen said he doesn't believe Gilstrap was involved in Collison's disappearance, but at this point, anyone is a suspect. It looks like Dr. Collison slept on a pile of garbage bags in the alley, and Mr. Gilstrap appropriated his loafers, Don Allen said. On the asphalt surface of the alley, there are three greasy sock prints covered in what appears to be rotted fish fillets from All National Burger. Then the footprints disappear. It's like something just swooped right in and scooped the good doctor up into thin air. Lemaitre Labs coordinator Dr. Carl Miller said it is vital the scientist be located. Dr. Collison is an important member of our team, Miller said. Of course, given his security level, I can't comment anymore. He's classified. Lemaitre Labs, at least publicly, designs weapons for the military. Collison was raised in foster care in Kansas City, Missouri. He attended college in Illinois and Ohio before earning his doctorate at Stanford. He has no known relatives. His surviving foster sister, Susan Meek, could not be reached for comment. Anyone with information on Collison's whereabouts may call 1-800-555-TIPS. 10. The newspaper fell to the table, and Cord sat back, leaning the chair onto its back legs like his mother had always told him not to. The ghost had a face, he had a name, and better yet, he had blinded Cord with science. This was it. 
This was beautiful. Science was reliable. Ghosts were not. His face grew hot as the facts of the story crept in. David Collison, Ph.D., worked at Le Metro Labs, some government place outside town. Cord thought he'd read something about some super-secret lab building a super collider or roller coaster. For all he knew, they were the same thing. One just had more buttons. But the government wasn't working on a machine that dropped people into his hallway, were they? Why would they want to do that? It must have been a mistake. How hard was it to dial in a faraway AM station on an old radio? Finding a place for a government transporter to beam a confused scientist must be at least twice that hard. But if Doc Brown Jr. was involved in building a transporter, maybe, just maybe, Cord could buy one from him. Or better yet, rent it. Or rent to own, like places do for poor young couples who can't afford a refrigerator or a living room set. He could rent to own. All he'd have to do is work out an affordable payment plan with the scientist, because a machine that could science fiction show zap a person from one place to another would be expensive. Like the House of Creed bespoke fragrance journey he'd seen in the Christmas Neiman Marcus catalog. People would be stupid to pay $475,000 to go to Paris to sniff perfume. But for a teleportation machine? Almost a half million dollars would be a bargain. Cord didn't have half a million dollars, but he would, eventually. He knew it. The newspaper article had landed him overnight guests for the next three months, so, unless jerks decided to cancel, he was looking to make at least a hundred grand. Cord rested his chin in his hand and stared at the picture of David Collison, Ph.D. Where are you, you beautiful, beautiful nerd boy? Eleven. The empty styrofoam coffee cup that read Dan's Daylight Donuts fit right over Bud Light Dave's newspaper face. Skid didn't want to look at him anymore. He said that? she asked. Brick reached out to grab the cup. A competitor's product wasn't good for business, but Skid snatched it first. Yes, he said two sentences. He lied. He said, watch her, Brick. Then he told me, Skid's going to kill us all. Skid. Skid. He knew my name, she thought. Of course he did. She froze. This isn't funny. Brick studied her face. Oily Man hadn't said two sentences. He'd said three. Watch out for Skid. She's not what she seems. That part Brick thought was right. If royally bombing on internet blind dates taught him anything, it's that women are a mystery. Skid pinched her jaw her face serious as a Hallmark made-for-TV movie. She stood and walked away from the table before turning back toward Brick. Things are wrong, she said, punching one hand into the other for an effect she didn't need. And not just Bud Light Dave disappearing and appearing again. The street name is wrong, too. It's like reality's wrong, you know? Parallel dimensions, the Mandela effect... That episode of South Park where Cartman had a goatee. Brick started to say something, but she cut him off. I know it is Timbinal Boulevard. I just know it. I know I worked the Doobie Brothers concert, even though the newspaper says Steely Dan. She snatched the newspaper and held it up to Brick. And I know this asshole tried to hit on me Friday night, then disappeared. 
Maybe something paranormal is happening. The Mothman guy, John Keel, called them window areas. He... Her eyes grew large, like in a keen painting. Brick didn't like where this was going. What is it? He asked. She turned the newspaper page around. What's the name of the paper? Watch out for Skid. The Kansas City Star? Why? Skid slapped it back onto the spool table, her finger on the folio. Brick read the Kansas City Times. Whoa. Yeah, she said, turning and beckoning him with both hands. Put out your clothes sign. We have to go talk to this murder house guy. Now, like right now. Brick didn't move. Please? Twelve. David's head was underwater only a few seconds. He hit the surface of the tank 138 miles per hour slower than when he'd appeared high enough in the troposphere he could have seen his house. His foot hit the bottom of the metal tank in slow motion. Then he shoved upward, breaking the surface and scaring the hell out of 15 head of cattle. Moo! They lowed in unison and scattered. Although cattle don't really scatter, one starts to run and the others follow. Oh, shit! He wheezed as he grabbed the sides of the tank with both hands, trying to steady himself. His heart pounded. What is this? The cattle mostly pulled Hereford and a few roans, forgot what startled them and began to slowly walk back toward the tank. David pushed himself to standing, trying to gather what breath his body would allow. He winced when he put weight on his injured left leg, then quickly shifted the weight to his right. Hey, you cows, he growled. Why don't you go away? The lead bovine stopped and looked at David with dark brown eyes. Moo? A farm. David had landed on a farm. Of course. Cows, idiot. A dusty red pickup was parked near the stock tank on the opposite side of a barbed wire fence. A John Deere tractor pulling a cultivator moved in the distance behind it. David pulled air into his lungs and pushed it out slowly. This is not cool. Things began to fall into his head. The things that had happened since the waves began swooping in and dropping him all over the universe. The pig people with swords, the mushroom people, what he did to Carl, the explosion, Skid. He grimaced. This was all Skid's fault. No, he realized. It was all Carl's fault. Everything but the pain. That was all Skid. There was no one there to see him. No one to ask him questions. David gritted his teeth in a painful grin. Something had interrupted his fall. Finally, some kind of misguided, misplaced, stupid luck. He grabbed one side of the tank with both hands, his breath still coming in hard. He lifted his right leg out of the water and swung it over the tank's side, securing his foot on the dusty, cattle-stomped ground before swinging out his left leg and dropping it like dead meat. He groaned when his foot hit the dirt. Sticking from his thigh was the black four-inch handle of a throwing knife. It was at that point he decided, if he ever saw Skid again, he was going to kill her. Chapter 4 1. 
The corrugated tin wall didn't so much open as become pudding when Dave passed through and fell onto his face. A cough shot from him when he hit the concrete floor that tasted of dust and motor oil. A spot of blood shot from his mouth and sat for a moment, just a moment, its surface tension holding the shape of a quarter-sized reddish pool before it soaked into the dirt. Dave pushed himself onto his rear and leaned backward, resting his shoulders on the firm tin that had seemed to be the contents of a dessert cup just moments before. I don't like this, he whispered. This dirty tin shop, the hallway with all those people looking down at him, the bar with the pretty dark-haired girl who punched him in the face, these were connected somehow. Hello? He said into the great empty space. His voice echoed slightly. A bird, startled by Dave's voice, fluttered near the high A-frame ceiling. A sparrow or barn swallow, most likely. Light came from the crack between the large rolling doors on three sides of the cavernous room. Other light leaked in through nail holes that had long ago lost their nails. So... It was daytime, he supposed. He also supposed that, apart from the bird, he was alone. Come on, take a breath. Relax, relax. He closed his eyes and breathed slowly, purposefully, trying to clear his thoughts like the corporate meditation guy brought in by Carl had showed them to do. How much money did Carl spend on that guy? He looked like Jesus. He shook his head, dislodging the thought. Breathe, Dave, breathe. In, out. In, out. Friday. Something had happened Friday. The experiment had been on track. Dave worked late every night for the past two months to make sure the collider would be online September 2nd, Saturday. He dotted I's, crossed T's, and caught a major flaw in Carl's math that may have shut down the whole project for another six months. And Carl was, what? Furious. Carl was furious. I don't need some kid telling me my math's wrong, Carl shouted at Dave during the launch meeting late Friday afternoon. Especially one I hired just because I owed his daddy a favor. Dave flushed at the jab. It wasn't fair. Carl's mistake, and it was a mistake, would send the experiment in a direction no one on the team wanted to go. Carl pounded his fist and talked about the god particle being nothing compared to what he would discover. Then he, Holy shit, hissed from Dave like he had a leak. After the meeting, Carl had sent everybody home. Dave remembered grabbing his car keys and leaving without saying goodbye to Gillian, without making plans to get drunk with Oscar. He stopped at the first bar he saw on his way back to his apartment, the Happy Crappy, or Happy Slappy, or Slap Happies, something like that. Then everything went wrong. That idiot, he said. The words came out slowly. That Cheeto-smelling bastard launched the experiment without me. A hum kicked on somewhere in the shop, and Dave's eyes popped open. He lifted himself onto stiff legs and walked toward the hum. It came from a hideous, blocky avocado green 1960s model refrigerator. He turned, taking in the entire structure for the first time.
air compressor, drill press, workbench, arc welder, table saw, and the fridge. A beer fridge. Hey, he said, his voice echoing through the old machine shed. I know this place. Two. Light streamed into manic muffins through its plate glass windows. A shadow of the window art, Muffin Monday all week long, showed on the polished original hardwood floors. The real estate agent had told Brick the building had been a general store, then a haberdashery in its early days before more modern shops like a hairdresser and Tammy's Tanning Oasis moved in and covered those glorious floors with black and white tiles. He had stripped the tiles and carefully brought back the luster of the wood floors during the remodel. Brick also took down the suspended ceiling to discover pressed copper. However, when he looked up, the beautiful pressed copper from another era was now tin. Come on, Skid said, stepping away from the table, waving him toward her like he was a puppy. Brick didn't move. What did you say your name was, Rick? Brick, he said, his voice soft. His eyes fell from the tin ceiling and onto Skid. Unless you'd rather call me Chauncey. Uh, no. Her face pinched, like she'd bitten into something sour. That's not going to happen. Then it's Brick. He stood and walked behind the counter, poured himself a cup of black coffee. Skid picked up her Dan's Daylight Donuts cup and waved it at him. Brick leaned over the display case and considered this woman, about five-six, who carried herself like twelfth-level fighter mage. What do you hope to find at the murder house? he asked. I don't know, she said, as she walked up to the display case and set the cup in front of him. But Bud Light Dave was there. He fell out of the air in front of twenty-one witnesses after he'd vanished from Slap Happy's. A look of realization swept across her face. Right after I punched him. Do you think... Brick shook his head. Seriously? He blew across the top of his recycled cup before snapping a plastic lid over it. I think whatever this guy was working on at this government lab, it's pretty important. A missing persons case doesn't hit the press for days unless it involves a kid, but his did the next day. Although, if I were you, I'd put some thought into why he warned me not to trust you. I sure am. She pried the lid off the cup and pushed it toward him. Brick stared at her. I am thinking about that, she said, taking the cup behind the counter. She turned sideways to slip behind the mass that was Brick and poured her own coffee. I'm also thinking about why you saw the same guy, but not the same guy. Why he vanished from the bar. Why he appeared back in the bar. Before he even disappeared the first time. Yeah. Brick nodded. That's what threw me off. After he disappeared from the bathroom, I walked back into the bar and saw you talking to him. Then you punched him. He said something offensive. Skid took a slow sip of coffee. This keeps getting weirder. Why do you think he showed up in the murder house? Brick shook his head. I don't know. Maybe things are just random, or maybe he has some connection there? Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe. She took another sip, 
Your coffee's better than Dan's Daylight Donuts. He turned his head to look at her, expecting something to be different. Her hair, the color of her shirt. Maybe she would have turned into an elf or something. Nothing. She looked the same. I know, he said. Dave uses store brand. He noticed Skid's eyes were bloodshot. Not sleeping well? he asked. She nodded. Me neither. The last time I looked, my ceiling was copper, Brick said. Had been for probably 150 years. Now it's tin. I don't like this. Whatever is happening, for whatever reason, it's not fun. Ceiling's copper again, Brick. Brick looked up. She was right. 3. Cord hung the newspaper in the entrance hall right next to the front door. Unlike the time he tried to build a birdhouse for his mom in eighth grade shop class, this looked just like he'd pictured it in his head. He stood, admiring the headline. Well, not the headline. The word in 48-point font read, g g, -g ghost The editor who wrote that watched too much Scooby-Doo, although Cord knew too much Scooby-Doo wasn't possible. He liked the subhead, Spectral Spirit Spotted at Sanderson Murder House. Thank you, reporter Beverly Gibson, he said, but the stupid grin slid from his face. He'd been too much in the moment Saturday morning. He hadn't even asked for her telephone number. It didn't matter. With the amount of wannabe ghostbusters who'd already paid for an overnight stay months in advance, he had plenty of time to meet nice girls. A bit of movement through the front window broke his thoughts. People walked by his house often. It was in a residential neighborhood, after all. The crazy few even jogged by, like that girl in black who'd bebopped past Sunday when Beverly Gibson and the one-named photographer showed up. But it was 10 a.m. on a workday. He leaned closer to the window. Two people walked up Gary Avenue in the direction of his house, which shouldn't have been odd. Cord's door got knocks from the occasional salesman, sometimes from even a kid hawking band candy, and a mailman-woman person still delivered door-to-door -door here, but these two were none of those. A man, the largest man he'd seen in person, bearded and wearing a red flannel shirt like he was Paul Bunyan, opened the gate to Cord's walkway, and a woman stepped in. She could have been a normal-sized human, or even tall. But in the man's shadow, this woman with dark hair tied in a ponytail looked like a middle schooler. What are you doing? Cord wondered and checked the door to see if it was locked. Not because of the man, although he couldn't see a lot of his face behind all that hair, but because of the expression on the woman's face. He'd seen that look before on a woman. A chill ran through him. No, go away, he whispered, pressing himself against the wall. Seconds later, a shadow fell over the window on the front door, and knuckles rapped. I'm not here. Cord didn't know why he felt jittery. Nothing usually frightened him. Not even moronic gym rats named Roman, and Roman had every right to frighten him. Cord even owned a haunted house, for Christ's sake. Then why? We know you're here! The woman said. Brick can see you through the window. Brick? He stopped. This was wrong. 
He had no rational reason for his guts to tie themselves into a garden hose at the end of summer mess. He owned a business. These people had approached his business. They must want to discuss a way to pay him money to use his business. They were not here to hurt him. He inhaled sharply because for some stupid reason he hadn't been breathing. Cord stood straight, stepped away from the wall, and opened the door. Good morning, he said to the strange couple. I'm sorry, but tours don't begin until seven. Have you reserved your spot? We're not here for the ghost tour, the woman said. We're here to discuss David Collison, Ph.D. Oh, no. Are you from the government? Squeaked out. No, she said. Cord grabbed the front door. He had to slam it, slam it for now, or his life would change. He knew his life would change, and he didn't want it to change. He liked his life just the way it was, thank you very much. The door came to a jarring stop, and the woman stepped into the house under Brick's outstretched arm. You should consider yourself lucky we're not with the government, she said, and took a few steps forward to allow Brick enough room to enter the house behind her. As the door closed, the knot in Cord's stomach tightened. He'd seen home invasions in movies, but they usually involved drugs or kidnapping a senator's daughter or something much more exciting than his life. What do you want? The woman smiled. Just to talk, she said. You really need to learn to relax. 4. Dave walked slowly toward the avocado beer fridge, his hand shaking as he grabbed the chrome handle and pulled open the door. What was left of a case of Miller Lite sat on the middle shelf, two Ziploc bags of sliced summer sausage, and a partial brick of sharp cheddar cheese on the top. He reached inside and pulled out the sausage. This isn't right, he said, his voice loud in the quiet machine shop. Dave opened the clear plastic bag and sniffed. The aroma dragged a flood of long-hidden memories through his brain. Grandpa Sam's farm. He plucked out one of the slices roughly cut by a pocket knife and bit down. The soft, processed meat stung his tongue pleasantly with coarse salt and cracked pepper. My God, he moaned. He hadn't eaten summer sausage since Grandpa Sam died. When was that? Grandpa Sam took me to see E.T., so 1982? He swallowed the processed meat and put the bag back into the fridge, drawing out a beer before shutting the door. But this is his shop. This is his beer fridge, his beer brand, his sausage. When Dave gripped the beer tightly and pulled, the tab came off so unexpectedly he almost dropped the can. What the? A pop tab ring hung on his index finger. He hadn't seen one of those for decades. That's because they stopped making them when I was a kid. Dave took the tab from his finger, bent it like he'd watched Grandpa Sam do hundreds of times, careful not to cut his fingers, and dropped it into the opening. This is wrong, he said, the bird in the rafters fluttering again at the sound of his voice. He held up the Miller light. This is all wrong. Dave pushed his arms into the air and spun like Julie Andrews on that Austrian mountain, trying to take in the machine shed all at once. Grandpa Sam's dead. This isn't his shed. This isn't his farm. 
I haven't been dropping out of thin air. Some bum didn't steal my goddamn shoes that cost me over a hundred dollars. I've lost my mind and gone to crazy town. He put the can to his lips and took a long draw of cold, foamy liquid, careful to rest his tongue on the opening so he didn't suck the tab into his throat. He drained the can and threw it across the shop. It landed and bounced, clanking into a shadowy corner. Hey! He shouted into the machine shop. It really is less filling and it tastes great. Who knew? A noise stilled his hand before he could pull open the fridge again. The sound of tires crunching on gravel hit him like Skid's fist. Someone owned this machine shed. Someone who might like the same snacks as Grandpa Sam and the same beer as Grandpa Sam. Someone who didn't know Dave once had a right to be here and might call the cops on a trespasser. He padded to the nearest door on sock feet, leaned in to peer through the crack. What he saw almost dropped him back onto the dirty concrete floor. A man in oil-stained key overalls stepped down from a dusty brown 1984 Ranger and spat tobacco juice. Levy Garrett came from Dave's mouth, although he didn't realize he'd said it. The passenger door popped open, and a sandy-haired boy, about eight years old, slid onto the gravel drive, his white E.T. t-shirt clean, except for a dark dog-and-suds root beer stain over Elliot's face. Dave knew that shirt. He knew that stain. They were both his. He also remembered the last time he wore that shirt, the day Grandpa Sam died. Dear God, he whispered, 1982. Five. Hey, you people can't do this, Cord protested as the big guy clamped a hand on his shoulder and walked him into the kitchen. The jitters that had grabbed Cord at the door left him. Now he was just mad. I'm a legitimate businessman in a legitimate neighborhood. So am I. Brick said, dropping Cord gently onto a wooden kitchen chair. Cord looked up at him, his eyes narrowed. Hey, you're the Manic Muffins guy. The statement caught Brick slightly off guard. Uh, yeah. You have really good coffee. Cord turned toward Skid. And you? Always the coffee, Brick mumbled over Cord's head. Why doesn't anybody ever say that about my muffins? You jogged past my house Saturday morning. Skid shrugged, her toned T2 Sarah Connor arms not lost on him. I'm sure lots of people do. He put on the car salesman's smile that won him employee of the month six times in a row at the dealership. I never forget a face, at least not one as striking as yours. Brick shook his head. Don't. Cord's smile turned into a grin. Oh, wow, so are you two, you know. Nope, Brick said. I don't really know her, just well enough that using the words striking and face in the same sentence isn't the best idea. While he said this, Brick contemplated the flowery 1970s linoleum in Skid's pink Hello Kitty shoes. Nope, he didn't know this woman at all. Skid turned a kitchen chair backward and plopped down. Now, Cordry, she said through a smile. Why? How do you know my name? He interrupted. 
She draped her arms over the back of the chair and rested her chin on them. I read Sunday's paper. Skid's grin faded slightly. It's cord. A hand the size of a Stephen King hardback slapped against the table. Cord jerked backward and almost fell. This isn't about you. This is about the scientist, Brick said, not shouting, but at the same time shouting. We all saw him on the same night, and he teleported somewhere each time. Teleported right in front of us. Brick stood and folded his arms, which, whether he intended it to or not, made him look even bigger. Cord pulled his cell phone from his pocket and activated the screen. I've just dialed 9-1, he said. My finger is about a quarter inch away from hitting another one. You two have about 30 seconds to convince me not to call the cops. So far... Skid's hand shot out faster than Cord could react and snatched the phone from him. Please stop, she said, her voice calm. She slowly pushed herself from the table and stood, slipping the phone in her back pocket. Something weird started happening to us the night we all met Dave. Her eyes bore into cords. Little things. Street names changed. The name of the newspaper changed. The band I remember seeing Saturday night wasn't the band that played by Sunday morning. Muffin frosting changed. Brick dropped his hands into his jeans pockets. How'd it taste? She waved him off. Delicious, very chocolatey. What we want to know, she continued, is what is Dave Collison, PhD's connection to this house, and do you expect him back? Back? Cord barked a laugh. Back? I don't know that guy. I have no idea how he got here. I was conducting a ghost tour and he just dropped out of the air. I have no idea if he's coming back, but... Do you guys smell that? Brick sniffed and nudged his hairy head at Cord. Do you have an air purifier? Six. Grandpa Sam. Dave tried to force himself to relax, but his chest had pulled too tight for that. Grandpa Sam died on the day Dave spilled root beer on his E.T. shirt. The memory filled Dave's head in a flash. After he spilled his soda, Grandpa Sam had laughed, pushed a wad of Levy Garrett chewing tobacco into his cheek, and got out of the truck, only to take a few steps, clutch his chest like Jonathan Kent, and fall dead onto the dusty gravel drive. Dave's screams echoed in his head. He had rushed back to the truck and grabbed the CB radio mic, trying to reach anybody to come and help. Dave peeled his face away from the crack between the door and the wall, tears running down his face. Nope, he said, turning and walking into the middle of the shop, the dusty concrete dotted with his sock footprints. I'm not going through that again. He stopped and looked to the ceiling, the rafters and shadows. Why the hell am I here? The bird chirped. I wasn't talking to you. There'd been no scream from outside. Not yet. Maybe I remember wrong. But he knew his brain was trying to lessen the impact of his grandfather dying in front of him for a second time. The day he died was the day Dave felt the world drop away. It was the reason he would follow his foster father's path into physics and try to solve time, to figure out a way to go back and warn Grandpa Sam he was going to die. Theoretically, 
the super collider he worked with could create mini black holes that would supply the extreme gravity needed to disrupt time. If only. The feel inside the shed changed, like static electricity had suddenly flooded the air. No! Fell out of his mouth, and he rushed toward the beer fridge, stuffing the bags of summer sausage and cheese into his pants pocket and looping a finger into the plastic yoke on a six-pack of Miller Lite. The wave must be on its way, and he didn't know when he'd eat again. He'd barely shut the door when the air freshener smell grew heavy and enveloped him. The little Dave outside screamed. Big Dave, no longer there to hear it. 7. Silence. Skid and Brick stared into the hall that went from the kitchen to the front room. Cord sat at the table, his hand cupped as if he still held the cell phone Skid had confiscated. Ahem, Cord said. Skid held a finger to her lips, then turned to Brick. You feel that? she asked. He nodded. Feel what? Cord wanted to stand with them, but he felt like he was in the principal's office. Change in air pressure, Brick said, taking a step toward the hallway. Like a storm's coming. Storm? Cord finally stood. What do you mean, storm? It's just like what it felt like when Bud Light Dave vanished in Slap Happies, Skid said, ignoring Cord. The air's heavy. Same smell, too. It's coming from the hall. This was getting even weirder. That's where the guy appeared. Or it could be anything, Brick said. If this Collison guy is slipping in and out of somewhere, he's also coming and going somewhere. He might not be the only one doing it. Skid's eyes popped wide. If it's him again, we can't let him get away. What if it's a Siberian tiger? Brick asked, a hand on her shoulder. Or a mountain troll, she frowned. How could it be a mountain troll? Of course it couldn't be a mountain troll, Cord said, his voice a little higher than he would have liked. He coughed. There's no such thing, but what about the tiger? It's him, she said, and his ass isn't getting away this time. Skid took off in a dead sprint and dropped into a baseball slide in the hallway, skimming over the false blood stain and turning to stop on her stomach. Brick moved into the hall after her more quickly than a big man should. Hey! Cord started, but a thump interrupted him, like someone had dropped a duffel bag of meat in his house. He stood, frozen, and watched a full can of beer roll into the kitchen. 8. Another floor. Dave mouthed, ouch, and slid his eyes open as he landed on his chest. He looked up. A pair of brown ones peered into his. Yaaah! Burst out as he scrambled to his knees. The woman the eyes belonged to grinned. Dave knew her. Skid? She pushed herself to her feet and rested hands on hips and leaned her weight onto her right leg like nothing unusual had just happened. Bud Light Dave, she said, then spoke over his head. Brick? Brick? What's a brick? Massive hairy hands grasped Dave's shoulders and lifted him into the air. Hey! He shouted. Hey! 
whoever or whatever had grabbed Dave, walked into a kitchen and set him in a chair. Did you see that? Skid asked. It was just like at the bar, except the other way. No, Cord said. In this house, it was exactly that way. Skid and Brick turned toward him. He just pop fell out of the air and landed on the stain in the hallway. He landed in exactly the same spot. Dave pointed a finger at Cord. I've seen you before. He moved his head toward Brick. But not you. I don't know you. This your oily man? Skid asked Brick. No. He grabbed Dave's chair and leaned it backward to inspect him, ignoring Dave's shout. And yes, he's not hurt, he's not covered in oil, but this is the guy I saw near the bathrooms at Slap Happy's. He's also not the guy. You're not making any sense, Cord said. Either this is or is not the guy. He's the man I saw. Brick relaxed and allowed the chair to rest on all four legs. He scratched his beard more out of habit than need. I know it sounds ridiculous, but this guy just fell out of nowhere, remember? What I mean is he's not the oily man I saw, but maybe he will be. Like, my guy is the future this guy, but even dirtier, if that makes any sense. It does, Skid said. But first, let's all call him Dave. Why? Brick asked. Because that's his name. She sniffed Dave, but all she could smell was beer and rotten fish sandwiches. She cringed. From what you said, the guy you saw is Dave, but not Dave. It's Dave, possibly from the future, dressed in the same clothing, but somehow injured and covered with oil. Where are you going with this? Skid exhaled slowly. I'm just trying to make this less confusing. Is it working? Bud Light Dave cleared his throat, and the three of them turned their attention to him. He sat at the table his shoulders slumped, leaning his bruised face on the palm of his left hand. From a purely textbook physics perspective, what you're suggesting, that you both saw different timeline versions of me, is theoretically possible, but technically impossible. He paused to let this sink in. But in a that's exactly what my boss was working on perspective, yep, you pretty much nailed it. So, Cord said. You're from the future? Dave drummed his fingers on his bruised cheek. Were you even listening to the conversation? He said. His voice dripped with defeat. Hey, could one of you bring the beer from the hallway? I've just flown here from 1982, and boy, are my arms tired. Nine. Dave finished his story from the moment he fell from the bar to the moment he saw his own grandfather at the farm. Then he looked around the kitchen table of the Sanderson murder house. His eyes landed on Skid. I know people usually preface something like this with no offense, Skid said, staring at Dave from across the table. But I won't. You stink. You smell terrible. Like beer and rotting fish sandwiches from All National Burger. Dave shook his head. I've gotten used to it. He pulled the last beer from the six-pack ring and waved it at Brick. Skid already had a Miller Lite from 1982 on the table in front of her. 
Cord held one as he paced from the wall near the hallway to the back door and back again, stopping occasionally to take a drink. You want one? No, Brick said. It's 10.30 in the morning. Cord stopped pacing across the bad linoleum and barked a laugh. You're kidding, right? Did you hear him? After what he told us and all the shit that's happened to you personally, you're worried about having a beer too early in the day? Hell, I think I'll start drinking even earlier and legitimize it by saying it's 10.30 a.m. somewhere. What I want to know, Brick said, leaning forward on his elbows toward Dave, table groaning under his weight, is why all this is happening. The crack of the beer opening seemed loud in the kitchen. Dave fumbled with pulling the tab off the can. I don't know the logical scientific explanation. But isn't that what you do? Cord blurted, dropping into the chair between Brick and Skid. You're a physicist, right? You... Skid slipped a hand behind Cord's neck and pulled his face close to hers. Shh, she whispered, then nodded to Dave. Please continue. The moment seemed to have gone. Dave's attention drifted over the kitchen. I've been here before, he said, then took a sip of beer. A long time ago, the light fixture was different, and Cecilia would have hated those curtains over the sink. He paused and looked around the table, his eyes wide. Oh, shit. This is all my fault. 10. A wet David limped from the cattle tank to the dusty pickup, the farmer out in the field oblivious to him. Pain lanced through David's left leg as the knife ripped at the muscles of his thigh with each small step. Goddamn skid. His right hand hit the bed behind the cab door. His left lifted the handle and pulled it open. He bit his bottom lip to muffle a scream as he pulled himself onto the driver's seat. Plan, Davy boy, you need a plan, he said through his teeth. He had to pull out the knife, he knew, but there would be blood, and lots of it. What if she hit an artery? But at that moment, he didn't care. He had work to do. Skid was a menace. He had to stop her. Okay, buddy, he said, his voice shaky. You can do this. David looked around the cab of the truck. Empty gun rack in the back window, oily t-shirt. He pulled the shirt toward him and held it up. A clean spot ringed the center. This will have to do. The interior of the cab started to swim in his vision. David closed his eyes to steady himself, sucking air in and blowing it out through his teeth. Come on, come on, man! The collider was out there and in danger. The attack would happen, if not now, soon. If Skid got to the lab, everything would be over. Kaput. Boom. No matter what, he had to protect the collider. David slid his eyes open and reached for the glove box, trying to choke back another scream. He screamed anyway. A lighter, leather gloves, insurance card, pens with seed company logos, pliers, a half-empty box of ammo. If the farmer were anything like Grandpa Sam... This glove compartment would hold something else he needed. He squeezed the compartment release. Jackpot. David reached in and pulled out a half-empty pint bottle of Windsor Canadian whiskey. 
Hello, farmer's friend, he said as he unscrewed the lid. You're going to keep me from having my leg amputated. He took a swig from the bottle, the whiskey burning as it went down, then gently tipped it on either side of the knife. Shit! He moaned into the cab as the amber liquid seeped into the knife wound. The cattle that had gathered near the open door of the truck backed up a few steps. Sorry, ladies, he wheezed, but this is going to get even louder. He capped the bottle, set it on the seat, and grabbed one of the leather gloves from the glove box. Sticking the glove into his mouth and biting down, his breath coming fast and hard around the leather, which smelled of manure, he took the handle of the throwing knife in two shaky hands and closed his eyes. It's the end of the world as we know it, he mumbled through the leather between his teeth. And I feel fucked. He pulled. Eleven. Your fault? Cord snapped and began to stand. What do you mean it's your fault? Brick's hand landed on Cord's shoulder and pushed him back onto the wooden chair. There's no need to get excited. Cord slipped under Brick's meat hook and backed from the table. When would be a good time to get excited, Brick? And what kind of name is Brick anyway? Well, I used to be a bricklayer. Well, I used to be a bricklayer, Cord mocked, putting the table between him and the giant. He'd just met these people, and he was already tired of their shit. That's cool, Dave said underneath it all, although no one heard him. Skid stood. Brick stood. Dave took a drink of beer and set the can on the table. I'm the calmest person here, he said. And I just time-traveled to the day my foster grandfather died. He pulled two Ziploc bags from his docker's pockets and laid them gently on the table. I have summer sausage and sharp cheddar cheese from 1982. They're kind of smashed from me falling on them, but I'm willing to share if you have more beer. Jesus, Cord thought. I should be charging these people. This is gold. Skid sat next to Dave and pulled open the Ziploc that contained the sausage. What did you mean when you said this was your fault? Do you know who I am? He looked around the table and laughed. Wow, that sounded really Kardashian. Do you know who I am? I'm so sorry. Something in the air had changed. Cord sniffed, but only the smell of summer sausage wafted around the table. Brick pulled a slice from the bag. Beer? Skid said, looking up at him. God damn it. Cord stomped from the refrigerator and put a Boulevard Pale Ale in front of Dave. Hey, thanks. Dave's eyebrows furrowed slightly, like he tried to remember something he couldn't. I don't think I got your name. Cord. Dave smiled. Hey. Skid, Brick, Cord, and I got stuck with Dave. I think it's... Cord opened his mouth but Skid cut him off. You're David Collison, Ph.D., she said, over hands gripped into a single fist atop the table. You're a theoretical physicist at Lemaitre Labs near Peculiar, Missouri, where you've worked on weapons for the government. You grew up around Kansas City, got your doctorate from Stanford, and your only surviving relative is a foster sister named Susan. Hey, Cord said, but everyone ignored him. 
Dave tried not to look directly at anyone as he took a drink of beer. Skid and Brick remained silent in the murder house kitchen. Hey, Cord said again. That's impressive, Dave said, ignoring Cord again. But what about Susan? Do you know her last name? It started with an M, I think, Skid said. Mink? Monk? Meek. Brick drummed his fingers on the table. I'm pretty sure it was Meek. We read about her in the newspaper story on your disappearance. Dave started to speak, but Cord cut him off. Hey, he said, the word coming out like it had way more syllables than it did. Meek is her married name. She's a Sanderson. Skid and Brick looked at him. I'm not an idiot, Cord turned toward Dave. You used to live here, didn't you? Dave took a long pull of the bottle before setting it back onto the table. I did. The foster system moved me to a new house in 1984 after Delbert killed Cecilia and Tommy. I was staying the night with a friend. Dave took a long breath before speaking again. I never saw Susan again after that. Oh, wow. Brick took another piece of nearly brand new 40-year-old sausage and leaned back in his chair. Skid stood and stepped closer to Dave. And you don't work on weapons. She bent close to his ear and whispered. You work on something that can disrupt space-time, don't you? He turned. Her brown eyes burned into his. Yes, he said, his voice equally as soft. But I can't talk about it. My work is as classified as the Roswell crash. What? erupted from Cord. Dave winced. I've said too much. I'll go to prison if anyone finds out. Not just don't bend over in the shower prison, but Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. That's serious. Skid grabbed the back of Dave's chair and turned him to face her. It's not just you. Reality is changing. Things we know to be true are now false. It's like we're in a choose-your-storybook and some idiot is reading it. His eyes dropped from hers. You're right. Lemaitre Labs doesn't design weapons. We have a super collider the size of CERN's underground. Holy shit, she said. You're crashing the building blocks of the universe together practically under our feet? You're looking for the god particle? Cord had no idea what they were talking about. He tapped the fingers of his left hand into the palm of his right. Hey, time out! Nobody listened. No, Dave said to Skid. We're not. That's a good thing. Skid looked at Brick and Cord. They could be creating black holes out by Peculiar. Black holes in Peculiar. Huh. Sounds like a punk band, but it could really mess with everything. Oh, no. I'm sorry, Skid, Dave said. But we're looking for what's beyond the God Particle. We're looking for the walls that keep dimensions from meeting and the magic that makes time appear to flow in a straight line. I followed my foster father's work into physics to develop time travel. Don't hit me. Cord picked up the beer in front of Dave and took a drink. I think I saw this on Doctor Who, he said. I left work Friday, Dave said to no one and everyone. Our boss Carl was pissed at me and ordered everyone on the project to leave. I'd found some problems with his math, as in intersecting dimensions problems, and I left. So? Brick asked. 
Dave became as grave as a tombstone. I never logged out of the system. It takes at least two people to log in for the machine to work. Carl must have used it after I left. For some reason I can't pin down, he knowingly used it with the bad math. He stopped for long enough to pry his beer from Cord's fist. Everyone sat quietly and watched him chug the rest of the bottle. He wouldn't have been able to do this if he was the only person logged in. Brick frowned. Well, if this Carl used the machine, it should have affected him too, right? Dave stood and walked to the refrigerator for another beer. He drank half of it before turning back to the group at the table. Yeah, no, I don't know, maybe. Cord pulled out a chair and sank into it. All he wanted to do was make money in an innocent enough con, then these people showed up. But why are you the one popping in and out of reality and not him? Skid asked. A number of reasons. Carl's equations totally screwed things up, Dave said then looked around the table. By things, I mean colliding realities and intersecting moments in time. If we were looking for the god particle, we'd have sucked the earth into a black hole of our own creation and wouldn't be having this conversation. But what Carl did is shredding our physical existence. But why you? Skid asked. That still doesn't explain why you're vanishing and reappearing, and why we recognize reality is changing when no one else seems to notice. Why has this brought us all to this house? The smile on Dave's bruised face had no humor behind it. I guess you haven't been in the basement. He nodded toward Cord. Is the equipment still down there? Cord swallowed hard. Yeah? Dave stood and walked across the kitchen floor to the basement door he hadn't opened in more than 30 years. Whoa! is really falling apart for our heroes. Will Skid learn to relax? Will Brick tell Skid what the oily man told him? And two Daves? Uh-oh. But our heroes finally joined forces, so that's a good thing, right? I wonder where the knife in other David's leg came from. Tune in to episode three of So You Had to Build a Time Machine to See the Future. Or the Past. Or whatever Sideways is. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, Listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks so much. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. And check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, as well as our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content related to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.